All right, we are back. Hello, everybody. This is the Caught Red Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Jesse Light. I'm Megan Light. We are just two dog lovers talking about true crime, horror, and most likely our dogs, too. Welcome back to those who listened to our first episode, and welcome to any first-time listeners. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We received a lot of good feedback from our friends and even some strangers. We love interacting with y'all, so don't be shy to message us on Instagram. If you don't know, our username is Podcast. Spell with P-A-W-D. Or you can click on anchor link in our bio on Instagram, and you can leave us a voice message there, too. That's very interesting. You can tell us what you think about our previous cases or put in a request for a case you'd like us to cover. Yes, we are open to all suggestions. Or we can just talk about doggos. That's fine, too. That's I'm perfectly fine with that. We did get a DM from a guy in Lake City, Arkansas, which was... Featured in our last episode. Yes, and he was a relative of Trent Davis, who was actually the person who discovered Amanda's body. Small world. I know. So he listened to our podcast and let us know we mispronounced some names, which is fine. Yes. We, well, it's expected because it's not like we hear about these cases we're going to cover on big media platforms. These are just small town newspapers, articles, right. things of that sort. Yeah. We're happy that he let us know. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, the first name was, of course, Amanda Tusing is what we, we said her name was, but it's pronounced Tussing. And then it, when Dana Stidham is what we pronounced her name, and it turns out the H is silent, so it's Stidham. Tricky. So wasn't too far off. No. We, I, we did pretty good, I think. Yeah. I All things considered. I wouldn't want my name misspelled well. or mispronounced. But <laughs> Jesse with an I, but it's no I. Every time. Or, or my mother-in-law <laughs> calls me Jetson now because... At, uh, one time! <laughs> Whole Hog Cafe, we were making our orders, and the girl thought I said Jetson somehow. So, yeah, she's been calling me that ever since. (laughs) It does remind me of the Key and Pill episode when he was the substitute teacher Uh that had been working in the inner city for 20 years, and he goes over to the white school and he starts calling Jayquelin, (laughs) Balake, (laughs) D-Nice. So, it wasn't that bad. No. Jetson. Jesse. Jetson. I'm just going to change my birth certificate to Jetson. Oh, no. Come on. Well, you ready to do this thing? Uh, I am if you are. I'm ready. All right. We are going to jump into our next episode, number two for Carson Prince. Yep. We're recording this on a Saturday, and we're hoping to drop this Tuesday. Yes. So so. look for it, y'all. Our sources... For this episode are going to be realstory.blogspot.com, unsolvedmysteries.fandom.com, tapatalk.com, uh, unsolved.com. Then we've also got Unsolved Mysteries, uh, an episode from season 11. Uh, I'm sorry. No, yeah. Season 11, episode 5. Uh, the Arkansas Times, and then the Arkansas State Police Department, the cases that are available through their website, and then also you will see why, but we are going to mention the Department of Corrections for a certain somebody later on. I had an extra source in there, too, amw.com. Good. All right, so let's do this thing, shall we? We shall. I am going to start off this episode with 
an inscription that is found on the gravestone of Carson Prince. You did unto others as you would have them do unto you. In our hearts, you will remain forever young. So who is Carson Prince? She grew up in Maumelle, Arkansas, which is a suburb outside of our state's capital, Little Rock. She was a big sister to two brothers. She was kind, caring, generous, great sense of humor, and very selfless. She had an ideal upbringing up until she was 13 when her parents divorced after 16 years. And I'm sure at that age it was very difficult because being a former 13-year-old girl myself, that is not the easiest age coming into high school, boys, I don't know if she was into sports or, you know, trying to find herself and having her parents separate, which between Jesse and I, thankfully, both our parents, both sets are still married. Mine are 42 years, 41, 42 years this year. And then your parents are... Married in 84, I believe. I might have to get fact-checked on that one. but Yeah, I'm probably going to get... <laughs> Made fun of for not knowing that. I know it's May 2nd. But they were at all of my basketball games, all my soccer games. I'm yeah. sure your parents went to all your gymnastics meets. Yes, because that so. was like the peak of my career. I was like 13, 14. And uh, I wish someone had told me that what I felt then was nothing. You think high school is like the hardest time of your life, but really it was like... Piece like, of cake. Like the easiest, mm-hmm. yes. And her mom had said something similar. Her mother's name is Suzanne. She had said that uh, I think Carson was struggling with who she was and where she was going, which is, I mean, that's normal. When you're young, you don't know what you're going to do with your life until you find something that sparks and piques mm-hmm. your interest. And both her parents were important people in Little Rock, Arkansas, so I'm sure yes. they had to work long hours and weren't all they always there, I'm sure. but Or maybe they had expectations set really high. Yeah. But she did grow over or grow out of that and came to terms of life and she pulled herself together. She got a scholarship to the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. But at some point during her sophomore year, she decided to move back home and live with her dad, Tom. Now, it doesn't really pertain to the case and you'll learn that soon enough, but it's kind of kind of odd that her father was the former mayor of Little Rock, either 1985 to 86 or through uh, 1987. And her mom was a deputy prosecutor, so That's like I before said, our time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Barely before mine. Let me just throw that one out there. I'll, you had a few more years. Yeah. I, I cradle robbed a little bit. The day that we are going to talk about is April 28th, 1999. Carson was only 19 years old, and that morning her father and her decided to talk about the day. She let him know that she was planning on registering at the University of Arkansas there in Little Rock, which I'm sure her dad was just thrilled about because then, you know, she'd be home and they'd get she to see each other. She didn't have to drive all the way to Fayetteville to do that, thankfully. Yeah, ugh. And it's not, not the best drive. Before he left for work, they did decide that they were going to have dinner and celebrate, and that was that, and that would be the last time that they would speak. The chaos of the day will only begin just hours later. Carson was said to have left her house 11.45 noonish by the housekeeper. And then at 12.15, or about about that time, all these phone calls start coming in. 
And things are a little jumbled depending on your source. Some witnesses say they said Clarkson's late model maroon Ford Bronco. Yeah. One of your dream cars. I know. I wish I knew exactly which year it was. I couldn't find that anywhere. But they saw it on the side of Interstate 430. Others say at 12.15, they saw this white Ford pickup truck just driving crazy all over the river bridge. And these two incidences must have happened minutes within each other. So we're going to go with the latter and say that 12.15 was probably when the drivers were seeing this white Ford pickup truck. Prior to this call, though, Carson could be seen wearing a white T-shirt, blue jeans, and she was standing by her vehicle. She had pulled over on the interstate between Cantrell Road, which is uh, also known as Highway 10, and the exit for Maumel. We will later find out that she had run out of gas. A gas station was within walking distance, so her father did question why she wouldn't just leave her car and walk that quarter mile or so and get gas or go get help. Also, what was kind of strange was that she had only been gone about 30 minutes, give or take, and it seemed as though she was heading back home. So maybe she forgot something she needed to take with her to the school because, as far as we know, that was the only errand she had planned doing that day. Yeah, that's very possible, Anna. Or she could have just realized she ran out of gas. and Or was getting real close. Yeah, tried to double back and go to a familiar gas station, but... I mean, I can get that. Yeah. I can understand that. Um, I like the one over here by us in Worcester. They're really it's nice convenient. in there. Yeah. Pop I mean, in, pop out. Closest one that way for another 10 minutes, mm-hmm. probably. So let's go back to these calls. It's 12.15. White Ford pickup truck was spotted by several drivers as it swerved all over I-430 on the river bridge on the southbound side, which we find out that it's on that side later on. Witnesses could see a young woman struggling inside the vehicle with a driver, a young white male. It seemed as though she was trying to get out, and then seconds later, Carson would be seen thrown or jumping from the truck, which was going about 70 miles per hour. After she had fallen from the vehicle, it sped off without any hesitation. Carson was rushed to the hospital, Sadly, despite the doctor's best efforts, she would succumb to her injuries, and Carson Prince passed away later that evening with her parents by her side. That's sad. I don't see anybody surviving that, though, 70 miles an hour. Mm -mm. Don't get in a car with a stranger. Please. That's like the number one thing parents teach their kids. Just say, no, I'll I'll walk the rest of the way. It's fine. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just like in the first episode, the parents say, oh, my daughter would never do this, she'd never do that, but that's not always the case. No. They didn't have true crime podcasts in 1999 to tell you what to do and what not to do. No. They had to wait every week for unsolved mysteries to pop up. Yeah. Listeners, take notes. Don't get in a car with a stranger. Stranger danger. Unless it's an Uber, of course, or a random Tinder or bubble date, I guess. No. Well, (laughs) I mean, Jesse and I reconnected on Tinder, so. Yeah. That's another story for another time. That's like the exception, I think. (laughs) I wasn't a serial killer. (laughs) Well, I didn't know or not. I was like, all right, let's go. What are the odds of two serial killers in the same car? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) All right, focus. All right, back to it. Back to it. How did this happen? Let's go back to Carson on the side of the road. Witnesses saw a young man with a white truck stop near her. He was holding a gas can, and they appeared to be conversing. 
And like Jesse said, everyone who knew Carson knew she would never willingly get into a stranger's vehicle. And with reports of the struggle that had happened just seconds later, it seems safe to assume that she was coerced or forced into it. Now, I was looking up, and in the state of Arkansas, leaving the scene of an accident where a person is injured or killed can lead to a charge of a Class D felony, which is up to six years in prison or and and $10,000 fine. I think a cat's talking. Bree's talk. talking. Yeah, I think a cat's talking to us. So we already feed him. Yeah, he's eating plenty today. Now, I don't know if you would consider what happened to her a hit and run, but I was just thinking back as I was looking up information, like I used to, it was a very short time period in my life, but I was a dispatcher and things get wild. I bet. I mean, and I can't imagine because the number of calls coming in and everybody's talking about something's going on on the river bridge. And then like, I just can't imagine the chaos. Yeah. That, and the energy that was going on in that room, them trying to figure out, like, what priority to put this? Where do I need to do this? Who do I need to send? Because you've got, at least um, when I was doing it, I'm sure things have changed in the last, like, 20-plus years. But we had multiple stations. You had somebody that did, like, fire and rescue that would also contact MIMS. And then you had the, the call intake person. And then you had a station that did just police. And you're and you're all in close quarters so you're either yelling at somebody across the room or they're having to listen in and or picking up the i mean it is just Just chaos chaos i can't even imagine and when i was reading about this part i was just in the point of view of the witnesses around the scene i didn't even think about how they would be reacting on the other side of these phone calls Mm -hmm. i was thinking like and no one knew who she was they just saw a person so they're not like former mayor's daughter they're just like there's a girl thrown mm. from a car i was thinking do they stop in the middle of the highway and check on this girl do they go after the the suspect so i would stop and check yeah. and you would go after him <laughs> probably I've been in the car with you multiple times I when you drive somebody else is going to stop for her and i'm going to go after this guy and see where he ends up <laughs> follow him and say cops meet me here i got him i got him <laughs> yeah But I actually witnessed a car swerving in that exact spot a couple years ago. He swerved. He was like two cars in front of me, and he swerved and hit the concrete barrier, and his car went like airborne for a split second. And I was like, what is going on? Is it a drunk driver? It was the middle of the day. (laughs) Who knows? But I was like, okay, I'm following him. I call the cops. I'm like, let him know where we're at and Mm -hmm. stuff. And then he just takes off going 100 miles an hour. I was like, I'm not going to... Nobody saw that. I'm not going to catch this guy, so... Well, I'm very proud of you calling because I very recently told Jesse about the bystander effect, which is when multiple people see an incident, they expect somebody else is going to report it, and everybody pretty much thinks that way, so nobody ends up reporting it because they think somebody else is going to do it, so I applaud you. Nowadays, they're recording it or putting it on, on live... Like, Instead of helping. Yeah, back then in 1999, they had flip didn't phones. have that. They had yeah, flip phones. <laughs> yeah. So It was a few years before the Razor, I'm pretty sure, at that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, jumping back into it, because we can go off on a tangent for a hot minute about that, too. Law enforcement, now that Carson has passed, needs to start looking into her life, figure out... What was going on? Was she seeing somebody? And she was. 
She was having an on and off relationship with a man that she'd met at a country club, and I couldn't find which one it was. There's several in our area, just like within like a 30 mile radius. Her friends and her family wanted her to break off things with him, but of course she wasn't ready to do that. There was this neighborhood gossip that he was dealing drugs and had used her car on occasion. How dare you use the Ford Bronco for your drug deals? Yeah. How dare you? Beautiful car. Not the new models. I'm not a fan of those. Jeeps all day. All day. All day. (laughs) The day before she died, Carson had gone to her mother's house to talk about why her boyfriend had been arrested on drug charges. Intent, wink, wink. Remember, her mother Susan was a deputy prosecutor at the time, but she had no involvement. And I found it very sad that Susan or Suzanne, I'm sorry, felt very uneasy around her daughter that she had to ask her to leave because she was afraid the boyfriend was out in the vehicle. Even worse, this was the last interaction that she would have with her daughter because Carson would be killed 12 hours later. Authorities did end up ruling out the boyfriend. Yeah, that's sad. That's the last conversation. Yeah. Um, There were some theories. He was involved in one of the theories they came up with, like, did his drug dealing leading to her death? He'd used her car, so maybe she was a target. Somebody saw her driving or just saw the car out in general. Like, oh, that's that dude. Mm -hmm. Because I never found his name. Um, There was another theory that perhaps she had some sort of stalker because she left Fayetteville in the middle of a year. Like, why would you do that unless you're just very unhappy, which I get that. But the most plausible reason was that she ran out of gas making her a victim of opportunity. Yep, turns out she was just wrong place, wrong time. And at that time, the driver was described as a white male in his 20s, medium height with sandy brown or blonde hair. Very general, not much to go off of. So their truck, the truck that he was driving was the big lead. It was a white Ford pickup truck. A lot of sources out there said that there was a large Ford painted on the back of the tailgate and a partial plate with the numbers 2, 7, and 4. They even tried to spark up interest. Uh, There was a reward for $50,000 at the time, leading to any information for the truck or the suspect. You would think that truck and the license plate would be enough Mm -hmm. to find him. I don't know. Yeah, because that description of him is like anybody. Fort mm, Ranger. <laughs> I'm not going to say that middle word. But, if I had the you bleep know. thing down on Oh, little, that would be fun. Yeah. We should look into that. The case will go cold for years, but guess what? It's solved. Well, you'd think it'd be solved faster, you know, her father and mother being such big people in, in Arkansas. You'd think that it'd be up in their top of the list case. To get, right. And plus all the pressure that the state police had when they put this on the Unsolved Mysteries show and broadcast it nationally and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So well, Solved it, in October 2004? Yes, it's solved in October 2004, five years after that horrible day. Uh, not only for the Prince family, but another animal's making noises. Clip-clopping on the Clip. stairs. We can hear them, yes. Uh, you got to think about how traumatic, like Jesse was saying, it was to witness somebody being thrown from the vehicle. And I'm glad that the drivers were so alert and they were able to keep the distance from the truck and avoid striking Carson as she'd fallen onto the bridge. Yeah. Five years later, does he have a guilty conscience or what? Probably. Yeah. He 
being Stephen Allen Talley, walked into Perry County Sheriff's Office and turned himself in. He was 38 at the time, and he's from Perryville, Arkansas. And not only did he confess to the death of Carson, but there were two more murders in that area. Just a few months after Carson, on June 21st, Tally murdered 16-year-old Barbara Leggett and her 25-year-old boyfriend, Christopher Barnes, both also from Perryville. Yeah, we said it, 16 and 25, but that's, yeah, that's, that's beside <laughs> the point. That's not what we're here to talk about. Tally will be charged with three counts of capital felony murder, two there in Perry County, which is for Perryville, and one in Pulaski County for, for Maumel slash Little Rock. So he starts telling his tales. He starts with Carson. He had no idea who she was, and like the police thought, she was just a victim of opportunity. And this is so disgusting. I hate saying it, but it's part of it because it's his own words. He said he was looking for someone to rape. Yeah, he was talking to the sheriff, Ray Bird, and he told, or Bird said that Tally started acting real kinky whenever they were in the truck together. And that's when she was like, this ain't right. I need to get out of here. Yes. He, he picked her up and uh, she had started walking to the closest gas station. And then, of course, he starts acting all funky and she starts panicking, and she knows something is wrong. Once she mentioned to him, though, that she was the daughter of a mayor, and any harm that came to her would haunt him for the rest of his life, which it kind of did because he ended up turning himself in, he said that he, too, was starting to panic, and he hit her with a wrench. She tries to open the door. She tries to escape, and he pulls out a 9 millimeter and tells her to get back inside. But simultaneously, he hits the brakes, and when he does, she falls from the vehicle. And he stated that he saw her head hit the guardrail and knew she was going to die, so he just kept on driving to Highway 10. Yeah, so Highway 10 leads all the way back to Perryville, where he's from, so it's just kind of a back road. But, I know, it's, it's horrible. Horrible. Um, when he turns himself in, he still has, he still has his truck. Uh, he had repainted it. Did a few modifications. Correct. Took the toolbox out. Yes, uh, things that the police had a warrant for, that they eventually got a warrant for to go look through the truck for because witness had mentioned it. It was in reports. That and his stepson was driving it now, so his stepson didn't really match the description. But No, and his wife started thinking something was going on because he was acting nervous you and strange. You do suspicious? <laughs> He asked his wife to lie to him, lie for him. So he kept telling his wife, "Hey, there's there's this description of this white truck, and it's not my truck. I wasn't I in swear. Little Rock. I swear, like okay." And it's crazy to me because, and a lot of serial killers, which he's, I think it's like three is serial, but technically, I don't really think they consider him one. Um, but so many of them are married with families. They have a normal life yeah, outside of it. Yeah, you would it. have yeah. no clue. It was funny because Tally's wife has been friends with the sheriff for a while. For She's years. She's like confided with him about problems with her husband. And she told him that he started arguing and acting really strange. And Tally told her several times that he should probably go talk to Ray Bird because he was just feeling so guilty, as he should. Gotta make you Just wonder. Five years later, makes you wonder what else he's yeah done. There has to be more. Yeah, 
you don't just, I just feel like you don't just walk up to somebody and be like, I'm going to kidnap you and do things to you, which yeah. is what he Wake did up to one his... morning and say, yeah, this is the one right here. Like, really? Ugh. Well, that, that being said, even though Carson's whole incident is, is horrible, what he did to his other two victims is, is way worse. It showed his true colors when he attacked Christopher and Barbara. So the couple, like we said, it was June 21st. That was the last time they were seen. Uh, Christopher was shot and killed. Also, Tally could rape Barbara. And they were at a lover's lane type of spot. And he shoots Christopher point blank. And that happens. Barbara just makes a run for it, which, I mean, uh, that's fight or flight. And that's yeah, what she did. She didn't have her pokey stick like you. Oh, yeah. Every girl needs a good pokey stick on their keychain. Or own several pocket knives because I kind of have an obsession yeah, with those. I have, have a lot of those. Yes. messing with you, though. Yes. Uh, he, he eventually does catch up with Barbara and he bounds her with duct tape. He, he does end up raping her and then he strangles her. Now, Barnes's body was found just a few days later, but it would be about five days or five years. I'm sorry. Uh, when Tally makes his confession about Barbara, he leads them to her remains. So they finally have closure on her part. Nothing but bones left at this point. Ugh. He's a terrible man. So he, earlier we talked about that one of the sources was the Arkansas Department of Corrections. We looked him up. So you don't have to. Don't worry. There's, there's nothing to see. He's nothing to look at. But he makes us green-eyed people look real bad. That's for sure. So he pled guilty to all three murders? Yes. And received a life sentence without the possibility of parole? Yes, over 999-plus years for Carson and life without the possibility of parole for Barbara and Christopher. Well, I hope he's gotten just punishment while in prison. Sexual yeah. offenders are at the bottom of the pecking order and most often I'd execute him. You kill prison, somebody, right? I think you should die. Yeah, they're the number one target for prison rape. That's for sure. And other inmates will say it's their duty to society to... You know. Serve true justice <laughs> to the things that we can't do out here. Yeah, but uh, he's had other disciplinary violations as well. He's not been a very good boy yeah. while he's been in prison. That's Eight counts of sexual activity, Ugh. whatever that means. Six counts of failure to obey, so a bunch of other stuff. He's, he's not a fan favorite either. That wraps up... Today's episode. Thank you for joining us on another case here in Arkansas. Our goal is going to be to shine a little bit of light on our home state, create awareness on cases that you may not have heard of, and to remember the victims of the ones that you have. But next week, do we have a surprise in store for you? Yes, I can't wait. But until then, my new favorite saying, (laughs) stay local, shop local. Murder local. (laughs) We might turn that into a shirt at some point. Jesse's really not a fan of it. (laughs) 